Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. All these different options here. We just, we don't know. I mean, we like certainty, right? Who doesn't? Uh, but right yeah. now, there's, there's clearly lots of questions out there. None of that. So, it's time for the weekend. Well, at least for me. And you enjoy your weekend. Yeah, your weekend. And have a good show, okay? All right. Thanks, bud. We'll catch you here on Monday. Connell, have a great weekend. Appreciate it. Okay. So, the big question, at least one of them, who will it be? Right now, as I mentioned, we don't know the name. We don't even know when a decision will be made. But Donald Trump now saying who he feels should be the next Speaker of the House. Coming up, we'll speak with one of the members who voted to oust Kevin McCarthy, and we'll take you inside the halls of the Capitol. Plus, they handled it in line with FBI guidance. Now we are learning MGM is out some $100 million. So did the Vegas casino make the right decision when they were hit by hackers? And the governor of New York is allowing bars, did you hear this, to open up first thing in the morning on Sunday. Why? She has a point. The Hill on News Nation starts now. Friday. And hello, and thanks for being here with us here on The Hill on News Nation. I'm Blake Berman, joined today by Scott Bolden, former D.C. Democratic Party chairman and a legal analyst. Kelly Meyer, of course, News Nation Washington correspondent. Mark Lauder is a former special assistant to President Trump, the uh, press secretary to Vice President Mike Pence as well. And Julia Manchester, national political reporter for The Hill. Hello to you all. It's been a crazy. Yeah, happy Friday. It's been a crazy, crazy, crazy week. And let's start with this. Did you see this earlier this afternoon? Sean Fain, the head of the UAW, announcing no further strikes against the big three automakers, at least for now. But set aside what he said for the moment, and look at that right there. Do you see what he wore? A shirt in all caps saying, eat the rich. It comes on a day in which the White House was actually able to celebrate some good news. The economy added 336,000 jobs last month. It's no accident. It's Bidenomics. I think they know they're better off financially than they were before. It's a fact. All right, so there's still no deal, still a strike. But you can't help but wonder if this is what President Biden, who was on the picket line last week, signed up for, Scott. You see Sean Fain there, and the message today is simply eat the rich. Yeah, um, 
T-shirts don't make policy, though, and they don't make deals, if you will. But, they, three, but, but clearly they make statements. Yep, they certainly do. The 336,000 jobs is a good thing, and uh, the unions ought to be celebrating that because a lot of those are going to be union jobs, especially a big portion of those jobs were the government, if you will. So um, uh, wrong messaging, if you will. Good message is that only a fraction of the, the, the auto workers are actually on strike, and so they're getting their message through. The fact that they're not putting more people on strike means they're making progress, I think. You know, here is another headline today. Blowout jobs report has some investors leaning toward another Fed rate hike on November 1st. It just seems like, Julia, a few steps forward, a few challenges backwards for President Biden when it comes to this economy, because the translation is great jobs report. Now the Federal Reserve might be hiking rates. Yeah, well, and on the jobs report, I was talking to one Republican in Virginia today who said, yeah, that's great, but a jobs report is abstract. You can say, great, we're growing the economy, but when someone goes to the grocery store to buy groceries, things are still expensive. Now, higher jobs, great, but it's still difficult on the pocketbook. But going back to the unions, I just want to make this point. I think Democrats in these states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, a lot of major Senate and gubernatorial races have happening this uh, next cycle, uh, they're in a very difficult position right now. You know, of course, the Democratic Party is pro-union, but at the same time, you have companies in these states like Michigan, major automakers. So a, a governor like Gretchen Whitmer, for example, has to be cognizant of the economy in her own state and dealing with these businesses. So the longer this drags out, the longer Sean Fain is making these statements, it makes it difficult for some Democrats. Bidenomics working, Mark? That's what we heard from the president. No. And this jobs report is as much of a <laughs> as is Bidenomics. When you look inside the numbers, 70,000 of those 330,000 jobs were government jobs. 150,000 of those jobs were part-time jobs. And we actually lost 20,000 full-time jobs. And to your point, people aren't at home worried about losing their job right now. They're worried about paying for groceries. They're worried about paying for gas. And that's why Bidenomics... You don't think there's some fear, though, in the economy about losing your job? Right now, because I think they see the low unemployment rate. It's been low, obviously, take out the pandemic. This this has been a recurring process. We've had a strong jobs market uh, for a very long time. So it's not the unemployment playbook we should be playing. It's the old political playbook from the 70s and 80s dealing with inflation. And Joe Biden's reading off the wrong script. All right. Meanwhile, up on Capitol Hill, the chaos surrounding House Republicans not letting up as they prepare to battle it out next week to see who might get enough votes to be elected Speaker of the House. The two declared candidates today tried to build at least a little bit of support and momentum. Representatives Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise met with several key groups, including the conservative House Freedom Caucus. Meantime, those involved are trying to figure out how Donald Trump's endorsement of Jim Jordan may play into all of this. Uh, Kelly, when you think about Steve Scalise, Jim Jordan, do you think either of those two get to that magic 215, 216, 217, whatever the number may be on any given day? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you have Jordan, and then with him getting that endorsement from former President Donald Trump, that may help him a little bit, uh, or it may hurt him as people may be wanting to move away from that. Scalise um, has by, been by McCarthy's side, so maybe they'll see him as a McCarthy 2.0. Uh, so it's really anyone's guess. Um, but it's interesting that, you know, they ousted McCarthy. I keep thinking, will they get someone who is better or worse, uh, maybe they would have rather to continue to work with McCarthy on this. But. Just a quick lightning round across. Uh, do any of those get to get to the magic number, yes or no? Uh, I don't think so. And, you don't think and so? And Hakeem Jeffries came out with a proposal that's dead on arrival. Okay. It used to be the coalition building piece. You think any of those get to, to 215, 216? I'm going to go with Scalise. Maybe. Scalise? Yeah. Okay. 
I'll say one of the two will. But but do you know who? I Abigail? don't know who. Okay. <laughs> I'm with Kelly on this. I think Scalise because he has such a built-in infrastructure. All right. So what about this idea of Donald Trump's uh, impact? Because you can make an argument, right, that it could either help or hurt in this case for Jim Jordan. Yeah, I think it helps Jim Jordan when it comes to members like Lauren Boeber and Marjorie Taylor Greene. It hurts him when it comes to the more moderate members who look at Scalise and Jordan and say, whoa, these guys are way to the right of me. And I'm talking about the moderate members in New York and California, for example, who are facing tough reelection bids. Yeah. But um, there might there are some Republicans who might be quiet about this and might be you know, unsure about President Trump jumping into this because so much is up in the air with his legal issues. Mark, you know, Donald Trump fairly well and and the legal issues. Why do you think he backed Jim Jordan? Is it simply because Donald Trump, of course, wants to be the next president of the United States and Jim Jordan of the two is the one who was going after Joe Biden the hardest? Is that the reason why? Jim Jordan's a fighter. And, I mean, he's the lead prosecutor, uh, you know, in the case against the Biden family crime syndicate, uh, or as some would say. Uh, and so, you know, he loves he loves having that fighter. Now, he's always said good things about Steve Scalise as well. So I think, you know, he sees Jim Jordan as the fighter for the movement. He knows that it's easier probably to get a lot more of the 210 who voted to oust McCarthy on the side of Jim Jordan, because both of them are highly respected uh, on the Hill. They both have good reputations. They're both likable. Uh, so it's not going to be that. It does keep the fighter, though. And I think it, it's good for him to have sp- spoken up, try to create some unity, get this over with, so we can actually move on and take the case to Joe Biden. All right. Well, one of the eight Republicans who voted to oust Speaker Kevin McCarthy is the Montana representative, Matt Rosendale, and he joins us live once again. Congressman, thanks for being back. Here on the Hill, uh, I know you have been a busy man this week, uh, and, and lots of folks have wanted your time. Jim Jordan, Steve Scalise, do you want one of those two to be the next Speaker of the House? I'm uh, sharing traits, not names, Blake. I think the next Speaker of the House, number one criteria, has to be trustworthy. has to be somebody that comes into our conference behind closed doors, and when they make commitments to us, we know that when the door opens up and they walk out and they begin making negotiations with Hakeem Jeffries or Chuck Schumer or Joe Biden, that they stand by the commitments that they made to the conference. And unfortunately, that's what Kevin McCarthy wasn't able or willing to do, which is why he's no longer the speaker. The next thing that the next speaker has to do is be able to share a vision for the conference of what we're going to be able to accomplish over the next 18 months and incite some enthusiasm amongst the conference to make sure that we're all motivated to work with that individual to go in that direction. Does Donald Trump backing Jim Jordan help or hurt the process here? I don't know. I will tell you this. Uh, There were some remarks floating around the end of the week about Donald Trump being eligible to uh, be the speaker. And I can tell you this much. He certainly would have negotiated a lot better debt ceiling deal uh, or put us on the path to fulfilling our 12 appropriation bills uh, better than the current leadership did. But I think that his services are as high as the best use is going to be back at the Oval Office. All right. So uh, that, that I mean, we know how you feel about Kevin McCarthy and clearly you're referencing uh, him and leadership there. There have been some talk here in the last hour or so, Congressman, about Kevin McCarthy's future. Of course, he's still a member of Congress and he has told uh, local media back home that he intends to to keep his job as a member of Congress, maybe even run again. Um, you clearly feel the way you do about Kevin McCarthy. Do you think he should resign? 
No, no, I do not. Uh, you'll find, Blake, that everything that I base my decisions on is strictly about policy. Nothing is personal with me. I serve in the Montana legislature, and I've got colleagues on both sides of the aisles that I have very strong relationships with. I have them in Washington, D.C. in my short tenure. I've been able to uh, secure some very strong relationships on both sides of the aisle, and none of these things are personal to me. I, um, so I, have, I have animosity or you know anxiety towards anyone. So, Congressman, one of the, the big deals here in Washington right now, you know, one of the questions is who on earth would want to be the Speaker of the House if all it takes is one person to bring up this, quote unquote, motion to vacate, basically a vote to, to kick the Speaker out. And there's some some talk here in Washington about if that threshold needs to be modified, if it needs to be raised. Are you in support of, of changing the the motion to vacate rule? I'm not. Uh, that that uh, rule was in place for over 200 years, Blake, and it was very durable. And I don't know why at this point all of a sudden people feel that we should be changing the rules. That was a very large part of the uh, debate and discussion that we had in January when uh, Kevin McCarthy was first elected to basically put the rules back in place. To why would, any, why would anyone run, Congress. though, if Congressman, why would anyone run, though, if one person won? can say you're out. And, and you mentioned that the motion to vacate's been there, but it was really held at a senior leadership level. This was now brought to an anyone level. So if one person, uh, you're basically saying you, you support one person being able to say, see ya. Uh, I'm sorry, but your, your facts aren't right, Blake. For, for over 200 years, the motion to vacate was available for one person to make. And Nancy Pelosi changed that most recently. And again, this is what why we had to restore the rules back in January, uh, because they had consolidated the power over the last 15, 18 years into the hands of the speaker and into the hands of the uh, rules committee so that the rest of the legislators, the rest of the members of Congress were relegated to a substandard uh, existence. They weren't able to represent their constituents equally. Uh, like the super legislative status that was granted to the speaker and those uh, 13 people on the rules committee. And so the motion to vacate had always been available to a single member. And one member can make the motion, but it takes a majority to pass any motion on the floor. And, and so there's a multitude of motions that are like that. There's a multitude of privileged motions that are like that. Anyone can make Cut. it, but it takes a, a majority of the body still to pass it. Congressman, before we go, uh, I want to ask you about some comments that you made in, in 2022 that have been reported on, uh, in which you said that you were, quote, praying each evening for a small majority. Um, do you still stand by those comments? And, and if so, uh, why? Oh, absolutely. And you'll see that the small conservative majority is what gave us the ability to uh, pass H.R. 1, which was the domestic energy production legislation. Uh, gave us the ability to pass H.R. 2, which was the most comprehensive and uh, conservative border security and immigration legislation. It gave us the ability to pass the National Defense Authorization Act, this Congress, uh, with all Republican votes. There's a small group of very committed, very conservative individuals that was able to bring the conference over to the right and say, this is where the American people want us to be. This is the America first agenda that they want us to pursue and to pass forward. And if it had not been for that small group of conservative individuals, that agenda would not have gone forward. Well, just just real quickly, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal says it calls it fantasy thinking. It's that it's a, a daily Democratic devotional. Um, you know, what would you say to those who were saying essentially that the flip of that is that that you might have been rooting Democrats on? 
I'd say the proof is in the pudding. Look at the legislation that we were able to pass through this Congress already. And that was all in spite of Kevin McCarthy, not because of Kevin McCarthy. And then the things that went wrong and came unraveled where we saw big spending measures that were blown out of proportion that uh, were able to garner more Democrat votes to pass instead of Republican votes. Kevin McCarthy was at the helm for those. Got to leave it there. Uh, Congressman Rosendale, we appreciate your time as always, sir. Hope you come on back. Thank you. Have a nice weekend. Thank you, Blake. Yep, of course. All right. So Joe Khalil has been roaming the halls of the Capitol for us on this Friday. There is it's been a busy week, Joe, and I think next week might be busier for you. But as we head into the weekend, what are you hearing right now? Yeah, well, so, you know, you're asking whether anyone can get 218 votes or however much it takes to become speaker. Right. What I'm hearing is behind closed doors. Uh, that is a pipe dream. Every Republican that I've talked to today, uh, I ask, do you think that this is actually going to be wrapped up, buttoned up, and that Republicans are going to have a speaker candidate by Tuesday or Wednesday like they're hoping? Not one person said they feel confident that that's actually going to happen. Whether it's Scalise, whether it's Jordan, right now you got maybe 120 people behind Scalise, give or take, maybe 80 or 90 behind Jordan. Each one of those men would have to take essentially all of the support from the other person to have enough support to become speaker. So uh, this is an incredibly divided conference right now, Blake. They know that. And the idea that they're going to get it together by Wednesday simply does not seem to be realistic. So uh, and what we do you make of the comments today? a long battle. Yeah. And, and Joe, what do you make of, of the comments of Kevin McCarthy and, and what you've been hearing uh, on the inside as it relates to his future? Well, I mean, he came out and shut it down. He literally just, you know, within the last half hour or so, came out, addressed some reporters and said, I heard there was a story about me resigning. I'm not going anywhere. So that was interesting. You know, we had reported that uh, his future was a bit more uncertain than uh, some of the other reporting that suggested he was going to resign. What role does he play? And the question then becomes, if he's sticking around, is he interested in possibly making another bid for speaker? There are some Republicans here who've said, I'd support Kevin McCarthy. He may be the only guy that can get to 218. So I don't know if he's going to throw his hat in yet, um, but it seems like he's not going anywhere for the, for the short term anyway. Joe Kay, roaming the Capitol hallways for us. Joe, thank you. Appreciate it. Yep. All right. And then, did you see this, by the way? There was a scrum in the sky between two Senate candidates in Battleground, Arizona. The Republican, Carrie Lake, the Democratic congressman, Ruben Gallego. When Gallego found out that he was on the exact same plane as Carrie Lake, he tweeted the following. He said, hey, we're on the same plane. Just came, uh, come back from first class to coach and we can chat. Well, Lake took him up on it once they landed. Watch. It's going to be a, a knockdown dragout, And yeah. unfortunately, our, our border is wide open. You and Kirsten have had a lot of time to do something about it. And even the Democrats are upset about it, Ruben. Absolutely true. Waiting for Mexico to pay for it. When it you know what? But again, Mexico chipped this in. This is something you and I can work together on. I no, I'm not, I'm not working together down. with you. I'm going to beat you. So let's go talk I'm going to beat you. We're going to save Arizona. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Carrie Lake, she came ready. She had the, the cell phone, the microphone. I think someone was, yeah. sh- was shooting her. I'm going to beat you. Straight to the face. Well, I was gangster. really excited. She's <laughs> a gangster. I, I, I was really excited because it first looked like it was so, so civil. And he said, well, I'll work together with you. And she goes, no, I'm going to beat you. <laughs> she is welcome. Welcome to the NFL, <laughs> yeah. right? 
I like this debate. The, this is interesting, though. I'm glad they got that on camera, and we should continue it was, that. It was a pop-up yeah. debate. Yeah. It was a pop-up <laughs> debate right there in the airport. Carrie Lake obviously still would have to go through a primary. So would so would Ruben Gallego. But th- this, I guess, could be a, a, ma- a matchup in one of the most important states. Hey, that's going to be in a commercial somewhere on her on, on her website and stuff. Everything. She's yeah. a fighter, right? She's a fighter. Good but preview. Mm-hmm. There will also be a third. There'll also be a third candidate on that stage, and that's where things get interesting mm-hmm. in Arizona. In, oh explain. yeah. Uh, well, with Kristen Cinema yeah, yeah, running as an independent, so I mean, you're going to get Carrie Lake and Ruben Gallego, and then add in Senator Cinema, you know, as a third party. And the question is, is who's drawn from whom, and how upset are they over the uh, current state of uh, what we have? Because you can blame both Gallego and Cinema for what we have going on in the economy, immigration, all of that. So that's that's Carrie Lake's uh, that's her forte, and as we see there, she is not afraid to fight. She's a former TV anchor. Mm-hmm. Right, she, like she's she's ready for a battle there in Arizona. That, th- there might not be some Republicans who want her on the ticket, right? Mm-hmm. But right. but but clearly she's setting this thing up. Yeah, and I think for her a lot of this is personal because when she ran for governor, remember she hasn't conceded that race. I mean, mm. she says I won that race, um, and so you know this is personal for her. I think she's looking to get back in it, and I don't know if she'll have the. You know, it seems like she's a very close ally of former President Trump. So you know, depending on where he ends up on the ticket, assuming he gets the nomination, they're gonna. I would assume they're gonna be thick and thin. Scrum in the skies to that <laughs> on the ground, politics. <laughs> All right, coming up. Was a wealthy Australian given secret information about U.S. nuclear capabilities and Russia? Today, former President Trump is pushing back on that possibility. There are lots of questions here about what it could mean for him going forward. We'll get into it when The Hill on News Nation returns. Asian. All right, welcome back here to The Hill on News Nation. Donald Trump's legal issues and the 2024 election are uniquely intertwined. Here's how National Review sees it. Trump's court dates and legal entanglements aren't a distraction from his campaign, as some observers predicted. In large part, they are the campaign. Joining us now to discuss the publication's editor-in-chief, Rich Lowry. Rich, thanks for being back here on The Hill. Hey, Appreciate the time. Yeah, yeah, of course. Happy Absolutely. Friday. Um, what, do you mean, what do you mean by that? That it is the well, campaign for Donald Trump. Well, just just look at the, the the two last Republican primary debates. Trump skips both of them, right? The, the first one was kind of interesting, right? And uh, we thought maybe some some folks would get some mojo. Uh, Nikki Haley got got some, and maybe Ron DeSantis a very very little bit. But what happens the next day? Mugshot overwhelms everything, right? This instantly iconic image for a lot of Republicans comes out and blots out the sun. Look the the debate last week, you know. Not so great. Kind of kind of a fizzle. But what happens Monday uh, immediately following the debate? Trump shows up at the defense table and a civil fraud case involving his business. Now, is he really concerned about this? Yes. Is he mad about it? Yes. Yeah, that, that's all true. But he'd only be sitting there and spend a couple of days sitting there if he knew it worked for him politically. So this dynamic has uh, uh, held true since the Alvin Bragg indictment. It bumped him up about 10 points in national polls. He's been at that elevated level ever since. And the non-Trump Republicans in the party are like, please, make it stop. No more indictments, no more arraignments, no more arrests, no more court appearances. But there's always another one ahead. And it's one of the reasons, not the only, but one of the reasons he's dominating this race. All right. um, I want to get your reaction to a comment that Chris Steyerwalt made on this show earlier this week. And we'll chat about it on the other side. 
there's three pieces of the Republican Party. There's pro-Trump, there's anti-Trump, and then there's what uh, a friend of mine calls always Republican. You've got never Trump, always Trump, and always Republican. So, there, so it's 35% hardcore Trump, okay. 25% hardcore anti-Trump, and, that and then the, the 40% in between. And the battle is over that 40%. Okay. 25% anti-Trump, as Chris sees it. What's left in the tank, Rich, if anything, for the anti-Trump movement at this point? Because it just seems like he's steamrolling ahead. Yeah, I mean, there was a national poll yesterday that had Trump above 60 and DeSantis in second at nine, right? That's Joe Biden RFK level polling. So I would say the, the one uh, hope if you don't want Trump to get the nomination and you're a Republican is he's a little softer, you know, not hugely, but a little softer in Iowa and New Hampshire. But, you know, you have DeSantis, the distant second in Iowa, and now Nikki Haley, the distant second in New Hampshire. So and it's hard to see Haley winning in Iowa. It's hard to see DeSantis winning in, in New Hampshire, even if for some reason Trump takes a couple big steps down. So he's looking so, extremely likely to be the nominee. You know, I wouldn't say it's baked, but likely, uh, yeah. the oven's been preheating to 425 for a long time. And you're, <laughs> it's in the oven and the aroma is wafting through the kitchen. All right. On a Friday, we'll take the food reference here. Um, what, what, do you make the, what do you make, though, of Nikki Haley? I mean, clearly there's there's a, uh, some sort of surge and some sort of momentum. Of course, you have mm -hmm. to keep that in context. But before we go curious real quick, Nikki Haley. Yeah, she's she's had some pickup. The, the first debate I thought was awesome. The second debate, not so great, but but she was she was forceful. The question is, if you accept Chris's schematic of the Republican electorate, which I think is broadly true, you can argue about the percentages. How does she break out? from the 25. And that was the promise of DeSantis. You know, he can get the 40 in the middle or a chunk of it and then get get some of that 25 anti-Trump. How is Nikki Haley breaking out? Even if she consolidates all that vote, which would be an achievement in and of itself, how, how she's going to eat further into the MAGA-ish elements of the party to get to a winning plurality. That's, that's a difficulty for her candidacy. Rich Lowry, National Review. Thank you, sir. Have a great weekend. You're welcome. Thank you. Yep. Uh, what's left in the anti- Trump movement, Kelly. I mean, you're out on the road. You're at yeah. these. You're at these rallies. You have the the front row seat and the press. For, you know, throughout that, I keep thinking about the voters I'm talking with. the The courtroom stuff, the investigations, just doesn't matter to them. It is a, not for the Trump supporters. They just they're just going forward. They think it's a hoax, as he's saying. Everything he's saying, they believe. And in terms of the courtroom after courtroom, it's just adding, like you said, the fuel to his campaign. Um, so it just seems like it keeps ch chugging along for him. I mean, I would agree. I mean, this I've said it before, and I'll continue to say it. This is a done deal. Uh, I mean, Trump's going to be the nominee. It was interesting to hear Rich there basically say essentially like almost sign yeah. sealed delivered. Although we're, we're heating the oven to 270, not 445. Another food reference. But no, no, this thing is, I mean, I think it's done. And I would actually add to what Rich was saying. It's not just the next day was a mugshot and a courtroom. He counter-programmed the first one with Tucker Carlson. He counter-programmed the second one with the UAW. Right. And so he's reaching massive audiences and denying oxygen to anyone who tries to peek their head up. But what do you do about the storms coming, though? Because that works in the primary, but it's not going to work in the general. They've got to shift their strategy, and you're just biding time. It's like a sugar high I was reading about. And when he comes tumbling down, that high comes down doing the general. And that strategy is not going to work. This, this is a storm based on weather forecasts, and I don't believe the local weather forecast. It ain't coming. <laughs> were, you, were you a local weatherman or a local reporter? Which one? Local, what? You were a local producer. Weather? I was local behind the scenes. Okay. I, agree. I agree with you on the primary. So before, before the show's starting, Julia's sitting over here, and she's like, banging out the keyboard keyboard and i'm like <laughs> i'm like are you, you you're doing a story and julia says yeah and i'm like what are you writing about
about and you talk about Virginia. Yeah. There's like a last ditch hope there for Glenn Youngkin among some Republicans, but that ain't happening. Yeah, yeah. And it's not happening because about a month from now is the Virginia state legislature races. All uh, seats in the House of Delegates in the state Senate are up for re-election. Youngkin, a lot of it has to do with his political future. He's very much tying himself to a lot of the Republicans running. He got involved in some of those primaries. So if Youngkin were to perform very well in or his candidates were to perform very well next uh, November, he would only have a month, really, maybe a month and a half to get in to run in Iowa or New Hampshire. Um, And if he performs poorly, well, I mean, that's not a good sign either. The focus of Julia writing an article is like Tom (laughs) Brady coming out of the tunnel. You just (laughs) saw it as a Julia. Julia. All right, coming up. $100 million, a decision made in Las Vegas. Now we are learning just how much the MGM lost when it was hit by hackers last month. They followed the guidance from the FBI. Is that the right guidance? We'll get into it when The Hill on News Nation returns. All right, welcome back. So there are not many who know the full capabilities of the American nuclear arsenal. But according to a new report, former President Donald Trump revealed those highly sensitive secrets to a foreign national shortly after he left the White House. This is what comes from ABC News. Quote, Trump allegedly discussed potentially sensitive information about U.S. nuclear submarines with a member of his Mar-a-Lago club, an Australian billionaire, the supposed exact number of nuclear warheads they routinely carry and exactly how close they supposedly can get to a Russian submarine without being detected. Now, the former president responded this afternoon, calling the claim false and ridiculous. All right. So this obviously pairs. You got this headline. You've got you know, the Jack Smith stuff with all the, you know, the secrets that he was apparently, you know, had at Mar-a-Lago and talking about. But consider this, a headline, a poll, who would do a better job responding to a national crisis? Joe Biden, 44 percent. Donald Trump, 51 percent. With all of that, Americans still would turn to Donald Trump. You're laughing. That's a Republican poll. Well, it's got to be a Republican poll. No, Quinnipiac University, one of, the, or, one of the most well-recognized Or what polls. you said is, is very true. What the, our, my co-panelist said, that the, the Republicans, the Trump supporters, uh, they don't care that he's under indictment for, for uh, espionage or whatever he's under indictment for in regard to these documents and stuff. He's just got this following. Uh, that being said, I also think that the whole age issue with Biden, it isn't that he's not competent or doesn't have the mental acuity. You think it's it plays into this? I think it does. I think he, he, his, his age and how he presents yeah. at his gait doesn't give people confidence, whether it's Democrats or Republicans. And that's starting to be a, a factor for Democrats now because we can't can't ignore. We've been ignoring it. We've been talking about mental acuity. But the fact of the matter is that that poll is an example. I will, I will add of, one thing to of, what, of the, what, I, what I'm, the, the point that I'm making. Yeah, I would add one thing too, though. And I was reading the New York Times article based on the ABC News reporting. The former ambassador uh, to Austra- to the United States from Australia. It's like. We know all of this. Right, this is right. nothing, there's nothing here because I mean, but, Australian sailors. But there's a line actually between knowing it and then citizen. being able to. Well, but but Australian sailors actually sail on our submarines. We're selling them our nuclear submarines so they can help counteract China. There's the, this wasn't classified information, and I'm not sure he did it, and he denies doing it. But the ambassador's like. 
There's nothing new here. We know it. We serve next to you on your submarine. Yeah, but the issue is, he gave it to a citizen, though, a very wealthy citizen, member of his, uh, member of uh, Mar-a-Lago. That's allegedly. That's a pro- allegedly gave it to a citizen. But we know he's been tape sharing and bragging similar information, similar kind of information to individuals because that's what he got indicted on. And so it's disturbing. I mean, remember the Biden administration doesn't brief him, give him security yeah, briefings like all, yeah. like they do with other presidents. Do they still give the classified information to Hunter? Because it's sitting by Hunter? the Corvette. Hunter doesn't get briefed. That was a good one. <laughs> that just, was a good one. I, I like that, but that, but that dog won't hunt. <laughs> uh, that poll, though, is is something to consider, right? And when you look about if it is a two-person matchup, Trump and Biden, and you see that at the end of the day, it's pocketbook and safety. Something to consider. All right, turning now to a story that sounds like it just might be straight out of Hollywood. This was actually, though, coming from Vegas. On September 10th, a group of hackers called Scattered Spider infiltrated the MGM resorts, shutting down the slot machines, hotel systems, and much more. Not all of it, some of it. Crippling the casino giant's operations as well. Now, MGM refused the hackers' ransom demand and eventually got control again 10 days later. But now, they say that came at a great cost. There's been a filing, and they say it hit them for more than $100 million at the end of the day. Joining us now, News Nation National Security Contributor and former FBI Special Agent Tracy Walder. Tracy, thank you for being here. Uh, appreciate it. Did MGM make the right call here? In theory, yes, although it really does depend on where the hacking originated from, though I suspect it's probably Russia since they are really at the pinpoint the tip of the spear of a lot of these ransomware attacks against businesses. The FBI typically recommends, most federal entities recommend, obviously not paying the ransom. And there's there's a couple reasons for that. One, if you do pay the ransom, there's no guarantee that you will get your data back in full that was taken. Also, they may ask for a ransom again and escalate the cost of that. Also, you may run into some legal problems because if you're paying a ransom to a foreign actor or a nefarious foreign actor or nation state, you could be aiding and abetting terrorism depending on what they're doing with that money. And so that's really why it's recommended not to pay the ransoms. Take me take me behind the scenes here. Um, I obviously know you weren't working on this case, but like how's the FBI advising, handholding something in between when something like this happens? Yeah, I mean, really what they're trying to do is find the nexus of the activity. Where is this coming from? One of the things that's, I guess, I guess been a gift to us, particularly in this geopolitical environment, is because the Russians have been doing a lot of this, Ukraine was actually able to hack um, a lot of their kind of rogue cyber criminals, if you will, and has leaked the names and addresses of a lot of them. And so as a result, the FBI has been able to pinpoint some of them and where this is coming from. So the biggest thing the FBI is probably trying to do it this point is to stop the bleeding, if you will, and trying to retrieve that data and make sure that they're not able to steal personal data because they have things like passport information um, available to hackers. You know, I I wonder why you say um, that MGM made the right call here because something similar happened to Caesars. The demand was 30 million. The Wall Street Journal reports that Caesars paid roughly half that. 15 and 100 uh, and, and, and yet, you know, you say that, that uh, MGM made the right decision here. Some might say, didn't, didn't Caesars do the right thing? 
again, it depends, right? We have to weigh the cost benefit because you're right. Yeah. 15 million versus a hundred million. Of course, it makes financial sense to just pay that. I mean, I don't think anyone um, would deny that. But when you factor in those other things, once they see that they can get 30 million from you, 15 million from you, a hundred million from you, what's to stop them from escalating that? And what's to ensure that you're going to get all of your data back? And in a situation like this, typically you don't get all of your data back, though I do understand where people are coming from in terms of wanting to pay these ransoms. Look, my data was breached as a result of the OPM hack. I don't want my data oh, out there. Really? I completely get it. Oh, yeah. Was that a mess? How big of a mess was that for you? <laughs> you know, that was a big mess because I was actually undercover at the CIA. So, Oh, my um, gosh, when, you're kidding. And they, and they got your yeah, info? Yeah. Can you so talk my, about my, this? My social security number. No, I've actually never talked about this before on air, but my social security <laughs> number... All of it. So that was breached by the Chinese and we didn't pay the ransom there. And I, I still, as much as a frustrating process as it was, um, I, I do understand and agree with, with not paying them. All right. Tracy Walder, former FBI, former CIA also, right? Always yes. appreciate the perspective. Thank you, Tracy. Talk to you soon. Thanks, All right. Coming up. He's a wild card in the 2024 presidential race, and he's expected to now run as an independent. But there is also more data. Have you seen this new polling that's out? More data to suggest that RFK Jr. just might hurt Republicans more than Democrats. Really? Could that actually be the case? We'll discuss after the break. All right, welcome back to The Hill. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. looking to throw a wrench, potentially, into the 2024 presidential election. He is expected to announce early next week that he'll be running as an independent. New polling suggests that this could spell trouble for both President Biden and former Trump. The new survey shows the two frontrunners at just over 30 percent, with RFK Jr. sitting at 14 percent. Elizabeth Vargas, come on in, joining us now to discuss. Hey there, Elizabeth. Happy Friday. Happy um, Friday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We made it on a crazy week. What do you make of that? I mean, 14%. You know, we the, the pack for RFK Jr. was saying they were at 17, 19, and we were like, yeah, 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 but that's the pack. This is a, you know, a, a legitimate Reuters poll having him at 14. Yeah, he's definitely uh, appealing to a core group of voters. The question is, is where do those vote? Where does he pull those voters from? Um, it's, it's interesting. I talked to a Republican strategist who said that he was up in New Hampshire and um, I was asking him which of the Republican candidates might have a chance of, of coming close, at least, to former President Trump. And he said, actually, the most signs I saw in New Hampshire were for Bobby Kennedy. So it says hmm. something. He has an appeal. And, and a lot of people who are Trump supporters find Bobby Kennedy very appealing. Um, yeah. We, in fact, know that a lot of Trump backers have been also backing Kennedy, perhaps as a spoiler. So mm -hmm. maybe his decision to jump in as an independent uh, will change things up. I don't know. It's interesting. I asked him, Blake, in the town hall that we had here on yeah. News Nation with him, uh, that question of whether or not he would ever run as an no independent. He said, absolutely not. I'm a Democrat. I was born a Democrat. We're a, a <laughs> family of Democrats. He was very passionate about it, and he's now yeah. changing his tune. You know, you mentioned that there's the thinking that maybe he actually does draw more um, 
from Republicans, in this case, potentially Donald Trump, than Democrats. There was, we, we know his stance on vaccines, right? Yes. Um, there was an interesting poll about COVID. And about lots whether of conspiracies, you were likely to by the way. There's lots of conspiracies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as we know. Um, and so, so look at this poll, Elizabeth. Um, are you likely to receive an updated vaccine? This goes straight down party lines, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. About seven in 10 Democrats say yes. About one in four Republicans say no, and half the independents flip a coin for independence. So does it go to the point, um, you know, one of the things that he's known for, it, it lines up, you know, with maybe him drawing some, uh, some, some support away from uh, the, whoever the Republican nominee. Hey, listen, um, the fact of the matter is the COVID, the reaction and response governmentally, societally to COVID uh, is is something we, we are still seeing play out, still unfolding. I know that there's a big study and a big report about to come out about the impact it had on children, um, that, yeah. it, that it, it is in, in the Democratic states <laughs> who stayed closed longer have children who are further behind academically. Mm-hmm. It was not. It was a mistake, in other words, according to this upcoming report, to close these schools and keep them closed as long as we did. There is plenty to adjudicate and litigate about our COVID response. But, um, you know, President Trump has said those vaccines, you know, that was me. That was my administration. And he's right. He is the person. He is the the person who funded and pushed for the development of these vaccines, which are widely seen worldwide as being effective, much more effective Mm -hmm. than the ones in China and the ones in Russia. So um, but it's so interesting when it comes to getting those booster shots. Democrats uh, really buy into it. Republicans don't. All right. What you got coming up uh, in about eight minutes time? Well, we're going to obviously talk all about all the border controversies going on with this announcement of uh, deportations of Venezuelans. But we're going to weigh into Ozempic. We are becoming Ozempic Nation. (laughs) Um, The company that makes Ozempic has just surpassed LVMH, Louis Vuitton. I mean, the the luxury brand is being the most valuable company in Denmark. Um, it is a hugely valuable company, and there have, the sales of these drugs, the prescriptions have gone up 300 uh, percent. We're going to weigh into the economics of this and the ripple effects. The food industry as a whole is now hurting and feeling the effects. People yep. on these weight loss drugs consume 20 percent fewer calories. That means they're buying a lot less food and different kinds of food once you're on these drugs. And Blake, in case you're wondering, you know, this kind of people who take Ozempic for weight loss have to take it for the rest of their lives. This is not Hmm. like a one and done. So you are talking about a huge market there. And there's a real race in the pharmaceutical industry to develop the next big Ozempic that's even better and more effective. It is fascinating that over in Europe, uh, Ozempic, bigger than Louis. Yeah, at this point bigger than Louis Vuitton. It just Vuitton. goes to, goes to show you where things are going. Yeah. <laughs> have a great weekend, though. We'll <laughs> catch you in about you seven minutes, Elizabeth. Okay. Thank you. All right, and remember, you can watch Elizabeth Vargas reports right here on News Nation coming up at 6 p.m. All right, still ahead. A lot of alcohol with that cup of coffee. Is that what you want in New York this Sunday? <laughs> Could actually be the case. Believe it or not, the governor made a decision to help out bars along that line. And why she did it makes sense, actually. (laughs) We'll talk about it before we go. Sunday, leaving UFO journalist George Knapp opens his vault to senior correspondent Brian Enten. Our government has been lying to us. I don't know what to believe even now. The UFO Reporter, The George Knapp Files, Sunday, only on News Nation. All right, so before we say goodbye, here's a story that caught R.I. The New York Governor, Kathy Hochul, is calling an audible for bars and restaurants this weekend. Why? 
Well, the Buffalo Bills play the Jacksonville Jaguars in London. So the game kicks off locally at 9 in the morning. Here's what she tweeted, quote, I'm directing the state liquor authority to extend the deadline for special permits so sports bars and restaurants can serve as early as 8 a.m. What could go wrong? Great. This is good politics. Oh, this, it's such good politics. <laughs> I mean, I, I worked for the governor of Indiana, and we were going daylight savings time. We were hosting the Final Four, and we waived it, right, yeah. uh, our well, liquor rules, because we had all those people in town. Happy sports fans. Happy, happy governor. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think Northeastern elites are going to drink beer at 9 a.m. We'll drink mimosas. The dark yeah. stuff. <laughs> a little coffee, pour something in it in, in New York. They're going to be rooting for go. their bills, I'll tell you that. You're telling on yourself. You're telling on yourself. Maybe, maybe not. All right. Thank you all. That was lots of fun. And thank you for watching The Hill. We'll be back on Monday, 5 o'clock.